You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, because that's what we like to do. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hi, I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Mark. And this week, well, we have talked about it relentlessly over several episodes. Adric, yes. I can't wait for this one. It's going to be great. No, it's not Adric I'm talking about. (laughs) Sylvester McCoy. We just seem to come back to that subject time after time after time. So I thought about time we got it out of our systems, did a whole podcast on Sylvester McCoy, and we don't ever need to come back to the subject has, again. Has Simon put you up to this? Well, to be honest, I actually, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I actually wrote an article about Sylvester McCoy for issue three hundred and something of the magazine. Right. Quickly check three seven seven. Which magazine? Yeah, three seven seven. Which magazine are we talking about? Starburst magazine, the magazine that sponsors this podcast. If you're listening to the podcast, you know that because it's in the Starburst section on they iTunes. Make a whole magazine about fruity chews. Yes, indeed. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy my, buy some tumbleweed just for every time Simon comes out with something like that. Uh, yeah, because to watch a tumbleweed wandering past is something that looks brilliant on a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Okay, Simon, one word. Sylvester McCoy, performance. Oh. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> Lee, one word. Sylvester McCoy, rolling his ass. Rubbish. <laughs> Mark, one word. Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred. Humana. Oh, that's two words, isn't it? Humana, humana. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you like Sophie Aldred? She's lovely, yeah. Okay, fair enough. She's lovely. <clears throat> well, I've got no plan for this episode. Just no. Talk. I mean, if you read the article in Starburst, the angle I took on that is that what they did with the writing of Doctor Who during the Sylvester McCoy years is very similar to what they did with the writers, the team they put together when um, Russell T. Davis brought Doctor Who back. The initial team he put together was a bunch of Doctor Who fans who got together, talked the stories through, and made a series that was coherent. And back in Sylvester McCoy's day, Andrew Carmel got a bunch of... Uh, they were all new writers to television which is the big difference. Russ T. Davis made damn sure that the writers he put together had television experience and could do the job. But Andrew Cartmel, as the first script editor, in fact, the only script editor in the end to work during the Sylvester McCoy tenure, put together a team of writers, Ian Briggs, people like that, Mark Platt, who all got together, talked about it, and came up with this universe 
in which the Sylvester McCoy Doctor would exist that was coherent. And you had this companion ace that they created. I mean, I think it was Ian Briggs who's down on paper as having created her. But they all put their ten penneth worth into the character and tried to bring us a rounded character and tried to bring us a complete universe for Doctor Who, which I'm, I know we talked about this on podcasts before, but, you know, that we hadn't really had for the previous few years. I, th- I thought J&T had such huge input in creating Ace and Ray from uh, Delta and the Bannermen. And they didn't know which one and they, they were going to go with. And they didn't know which one they were going to go with. And yeah. I think, uh, in the obviously, went for Ace in the end. Um, but it was the way that they were... Um, aired or something as well that was quite important well no they were going to either put Dragonfire on before Delta and Abandonment if they chose to go with Ray right because Ray was the character in Delta and Abandonment that's right and yeah. then the last scene of Delta yeah. and Abandonment she'd have left and, yeah but uh, Dragonfire was chosen because it's more traditional Doctor Who story to put at the end of the season I no think. they didn't choose to put Dragonfire at the end because it was more traditional they chose Dragonfire to put at the end because they kept Ace on but the story itself is quite traditional. Yeah, but it's also entirely in studio, and it's a bit of an unusual one to stick at the end of a season. Could have had Ace as Ray. They wouldn't have... Either way round. No, they wouldn't have put Dragonfire on last if they'd have chosen Ray, because then the Doctor would have had to go back and pick up Ray afterwards. No, okay, well, you're getting confused. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but they couldn't have put Ray in Dragonfire, because Ray was specifically this 1950s girl. Yeah, no, What? okay... Delta and the Bannermen, if it was at the end of the season, you use Sophie Aldred, okay, as Ray, called Ray, and then you use that character instead. As opposed to the other way around. So, it wasn't the actress, it was the character. Well, I I don't really see what you're getting, because Ray is very specifically a character that works in the story Delta and the Bannermen. You know what they're on about? Ace is very specific. I don't know what I'm on about. Let's move on. I think Lee's trying to say... (laughs) No, I just I just heard that somewhere that they <clears throat> they decided to use that story Dragonfire because it at the end of the season because it was a more traditional story, okay? And at that point they weren't sure which character which actress to use. No, that was completely wrong con- because Dragonfire was an entirely in-studio story and they didn't like to finish on an entirely in-studio story. They'd like to finish on something that was Oh, and get my facts like a bit prettier to look at. Hopefully somebody will write in at, <clears throat> to <laughs> If you look at season 26, yes. Ghostlight was the last story they made and should have been the last story to go out, but they went out with Survival because it was a bit more spectacular because it wasn't an entirely in-studio story, so mm-hmm. they bumped Ghostlight up. Same thing happened in season 25. They bumped the story order around then because they wanted Silver Nemesis to start on the anniversary date, but they didn't want Happiness Patrol to be the last story that went out because it was, again, an entirely in-studio story. So Dragonfire, they had to go out with last because they'd chosen the character of Ace, who was the character in Dragonfire, to be the new companion. So Dragonfire, even though they wouldn't have wanted it to go out last, had to go out last because that's the character they kept on. Who likes Sylvester McCoy's era here? Who's a, who's a fan? Well, I prefer it muchly over both Peter Davison's and Colin Baker's. Really? Mm. Well, you too, Simon? Ah, not at all. No. <laughs> There's only one way to can, solve can this. Can I just say, I have this theory about the Eye of the Storm effect on Doctors, where I think to a certain extent the actors who play that, we need to distinguish between the era and the Doctor, the actor themselves. Because I don't actually have many issues with Sylvester McCoy 
Silver McCoy. Silver McCoy. <laughs> That's an anniversary story. Yeah. Um, I don't really have issues with Sylvester McCoy like that. And I was actually quite chuffed when I heard that he was going to be the Doctor at the time. I don't... We I have liked to get him on as a, this, but we'll come back to it. Go on. Yeah. But um, regardless of what went on with the series and, and all the stuff that I hate, <laughs> if I'm honest... Okay, explain. I didn't have a... I didn't have problems with him. What is it you hated about the series? Yeah, it's okay. We, we can talk about this. Yeah, I... It's all history now, anyway. It's I know. Thirty years ago, better part. Come on, Simon. It was just embarrassing. Yeah, I fa- as a fan, I found it incredibly uh, embarrassing and very hard to justify. But my love for the program. Do you not think that's perhaps something to do with your age? Because yes. if you'd have been that no, age, because I still watch it now, and I find it incredibly uncomfortable to watch. But do you not get the same thing, say, with season seventeen? Because I found season seventeen. I love it now, but mm. at the time, I found season 17 incredibly embarrassing. No, I don't. The no, Nymon and the Mandrills. Yeah, I do. Some well. of the overacting yeah. and the funny stuff. I find it easier to accept. The TARDIS console that goes... <laughs> when it blows up, and, you know, whatever the sound effect they put on in. No, I, I see what you're getting at, Simon. The, yeah. the whole the whole era feels a bit on the cheap, actually. I know it that, does. I know From the credits values, right the way through. The whole thing, the opening sequence, the um, the titles, the, first the music. First use of CGI. Uh, the music, sorry. First use of CGI in Doctor Who, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, but it looks it? like cheap CGI. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Well, I like, actually, the opening titles. Of yeah, the, I don't mind no, I don't. What the meteorites that come through? I prefer it to the Starfield because the Starfield says to me, "This is a space show." It doesn't say anything about time. Well, that was probably Bidmead, wasn't it? Saying make it spacey. Well, I don't know Bidmead or John Nathan Turner. Right. One or the other one said, "You know, somebody said Starfield," and the moment they put a Starfield mm. into the open titles, it says to me, "This is a show about space travel." Yeah, and it's not a show about to, something to do. Didn't it stem from the idea of having their face made up from stars? I think that was the initial idea, wasn't it? Yeah, but they could still have put mm. some kind of vortex it in was, there as it well. It was a bit like <laughs> the beginning of the old grey whistle test. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Very vaguely, yeah. yeah. Mm. But the Mixed point, in with a bit of Sarah the point being, up until then, they had always had something that represented the time vortex. Mm. And then when season 18 came along, they didn't have time represented in the opening titles at all anymore. Okay, so they don't really, again, in McCoy, but you do get more of a hint of that with the McCoy opening titles than you had done since mm. any opening titles since 1979. Okay, well, the guy who did the music, I uh, can't remember. Keth McCulloch. Keth McCulloch. Yeah, yeah, probably he's a really nice guy. I'm mm. sure he is. Mm. But I'm sorry, Mr. McCulloch, or whatever your name is. It was a terrible piece of music. Mm-hmm. And it must have been done on a very tiny computer on his own in, the, in his bedroom somewhere. It, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like me having a go at it. Are you talking about the opening titles? The opening now, titles well. and, and all the music as well, because he did incidental hey, music as well, didn't on he? On about three <laughs> stories. Yeah. That's one of the things <laughs> that I find... Remembrance of the Daleks. Horrible. Oh, yeah. And the stabs. The stabs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Questful oh. thumbs. Yeah. I find that's one of the things I can't reconcile watching those back is it, it's grating. It is. You had a story about the stabs, the didn't you, Simon? What was that? About Delta and the Bannerman when you watched that. What was what story? Oh, it was, it was, it was the just very thumps. Yeah, it was very funny that you said that you you were very, feeling really ill and you thought you'd watch the oh, Delta yeah. and the Bannerman yeah. to cheer yeah. you up. Mm. And it literally made me feel... Even worse. Because <laughs> you had it flu, did. of course, and it was I like... I had flu, all yeah. the music yeah. was getting You know, you know you, the hangover effect when you're hungover and you start watching something, something like that really changes your stomach, like Hollyoaks or something. <laughs> and it, uh, and it does make you feel, feel ten times worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And but you know, Keith McCulloch did also the the songs in that. The what songs? All Delta of them. The Bannerman, yeah. yeah. Did he? Yeah. yeah. That was actually not bad then. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, yeah no, no, showed no, no one's entire... doubting his calibre. No, no, no. It's just so... the electronic stuff is pretty I rude. know. Yeah. But he's, he only did about three stories, something like that. Mark Ayers, of course, did several stories mm. during McCoy. Yeah, he did Ghostline. I actually didn't like that music either. I think most. <laughs> no. of, I think all the music in Sylvester's um, but tenure then was I didn't bad like any of me. the music going right back to Dudley Simpson was the last one I liked. I didn't like any of the eighties music at really? all. You didn't like no, Dudley I didn't Simpson like Peter Howell or anything. I quite like Peter Howell. Who was into the Sea Devils music? Um, oh. Kevin Clark. Wow. We can, we can have a whole episode on, on music. Yeah, yeah. That's almost as bad as mm. the Sylvester McCoy. You see, Peter <laughs> Howell and all that, there may have been some nice themes, but it all sounded to me like cheap synths. Yeah, a lot, lot of um, prior F- to that, FM synthesis. Yeah, prior to that, there was real instruments. I think if you had a mixture of real instruments and cheap synths, you might have come up with a synthesis that actually sounded quite yeah. weird yeah. and worked within Doctor Who because you wanted something weird. Dudley Simpson, bless his soul, I mean, he wrote so many that obviously a lot of them sound the same, but he always came up with a score that sounded weird and spooky and unusual, mm. whereas the cheap synths, I mean, the melodies maybe and the arrangements, but because they Do were you, cheap synths, the they worst didn't sound thing spooky. About, the worst thing about synths is synths trying to pretend to be something else. Mm. And I think that's my main issue. The drums are all synthesized drums. Yeah, horrible. Like the little paradiddles. Yeah. Rather than using a real drum, just mm. a snare drum. Mm. Just use that. He <laughs> uses the the sound on the keyboard. Do 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 do, and it just sounds. Yeah. But that, that's what it feels like through the whole of Sylvester McCoy's era. Cheap and quite shallow sounding. Yeah. And also with the video, everything's videoed, and it looks cheap and shallow. A lot of acting was very cheap and shallow, and some of the scripts and the plots and, were pretty bad. Well, the bad. casting as well. But I think, I Awful. don't know if anybody else agrees that it got better as we got towards the season 26. I do. Mm. I feel that. Um, you do, yeah. It and, did. It did. But there aren't that many great stories. And I, I it's funny because I remember watching Remembrance of the Daleks and getting into it again. I think, oh, this is quite good again. But um, and then going back and rewatching recently, Remembrance of the Daleks, and thinking there's loads of things I don't like about it. Actually, I that's why when I watch them back now, I prefer The Happiness Patrol and The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. At the time, I preferred Remembrance mm. over Happiness Patrol. But now, looking back, I think Happiness Patrol is leaps and bounds ahead of I Remembrance. I hated yes. The Happiness Patrol. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I've seen it recently, and somebody else, I haven't done this, but apparently it's a good way of doing it, it's watching it in black and white, because it is actually yeah. quite noir. It has got a lot of noir feeling in it. It's... Um, a lot of shadows and stuff. They deliberately Go used... and look it up. Go and look it up, guys, if you don't know what that means. Oh, noir. noir. He means noir. noir. <laughs> yeah. noir. They're looking noir. confused. French accent. Dreadful. Noir. So is, is that modern farming? Noir. Mean, noir. <laughs> he means... <laughs> He means film noir. I'm yeah, reminded do, of yeah. that guy yes. from New R. I'm not French. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, yes. Heidi, hi, hello, hello. What, what's going well, on? Well, they used, in that, they used um, the same kind of sort of, ex- not realistic, but expressionistic looking sets that they'd used in the Time Meddler, actually. That's a really good example of them using sets like that. In the Time Meddler, they'd made a virtue of the fact that it was a tiny studio by making perspective sets that actually on film looked a bit weird, but looked weird in a nice way. And the same thing in Happiness Patrol. I think some of the street sets, okay, rubbish, but I think some of the sets in the Happiness Patrol have this actually, this really weird quality. I said this in another podcast, that actually there's a whole feeling of metaphoric significance about all different levels of the production, but I really think there is something genuinely 
quite dreamlike about some of the sets in the Happiness Patrol, mm-hmm. especially when you get down to the lair of the Candyman. Yeah, no, I I agree with that after. There's some of those that sets in the tunnels as well yeah. with those weird small pod people. Got to say that is the oh yeah the pod people I've forgotten about them. Yeah, the, uh, that's the only thing that's that, that just uh, annoys the heck out of me is the Candyman. I'm sorry, I don't care what you say. <laughs> it's the it's the design ruined it. If the oh, Candyman wasn't here yeah. when we talked about the Candyman, no, no, no he wasn't. If the Candyman, we vented. Go on, you vent. This is an easy stab. Okay, it's an easy stab, isn't it? It's going oh, the Candyman's rubbish. It's just a terrible design. I don't mind the idea. I don't mind the idea of something being really sweet and lovely and happy and da-da-da-da-da, and it's dangerous. I like that. Like a dangerous teddy bear with, you know, knives coming out of it or something. That's that's. I like the idea of that. It's just the design was Bertie Bassett on acid, and it just looks rubbish. But you've just said it. Bertie yeah. Bassett on acid. It still looks rubbish. I think uh, what I'd really but like to see... But we brought this up, and for the benefit of those listeners who've heard us talking about it a couple of weeks ago, you Which can I fast didn't. forward 20 <laughs> seconds now. <laughs> but the original idea, the writer's idea, was that the Candyman was just a regular man who made sweets. Yeah, okay, that would have been better. Yes. Like the like the um, creepy guy from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, the child, the child mm-hmm. catcher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, what is interesting is that you can come back now, listeners. Paradise Towers, yes. okay, which is uh, again another very poor production in my eyes. And a, a, Simon a pre- and Mark are having an entirely different conversation <laughs> to okay. us now. Right, the Paradise Towers, it, terrible production, <laughs> right? A rather good idea. And do you know something? I reckon if you were to take that story and the Happiness Patrol, give it to Stephen Moffat, I think it'd make a great, great version of both of those. I mean, Toby Whithouse with the God Complex was very similar feeling to, uh, to to Paradise Towers in a way, because it's all set in one kind of... Paradise Towers is amazing. No, I think it's awful. I think oh. it's terrible as it is. It's really bad. It's, the whole thing's bad. It's a great idea on paper. I like the cannibal so, women. You know, hold up. They're going to be eating people because there's nothing else it, less to eat. The caretakers, the caretakers It suffers mad. from not having a lot of money. It mm. suffers from pantomime-ism. Yes. No, it so doesn't. There is no, there is no fourth wall. Look behind you, crap! In Paradise Towers, there really isn't. Look behind you. What about Richard Briers? Richard Briers' performance is well over the diddly top, diddly diddly diddly. <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> but and how many moustaches is he getting? <laughs> you know, it's like he's just twirling his eyebrows at that point. Yeah, but okay. How many actors Ridiculous. over the years have done that in Doctor Who? Yes, it's I know. This thing know. of the actors taking it seriously. Isn't it? If they'd have taken it seriously. It's like playing comedy. Comedy works when you take it seriously and you play it as well as you would any other drama. And there's this uh, immense feeling that the people doing the show, making the programme, are not taking it seriously. But I don't think there is. I think they may have tried to take it seriously at that point. But Richard Bryce, certainly, and I love the guy, just didn't get it at that point. Okay, maybe. But in the entire rest of the cast and crew of Paradise Towers are making a virtue, like I've said about the Happiness Patrol, of a lack of money to make it work Mm. by making it something that works on a different level. If you watch Paradise Towers not expecting to see social realism, but expecting to see social metaphor instead, then it works brilliantly. I mean, the, the machines, the cleaners, whatever they're called, they don't work, obviously. They're rubbish. They're too big, too slow too cheap looking they don't work but apart from that the rest of the production there's some really nice sets there the bit where they get up to the top of the building and there's supposed to be this gorgeous swimming pool 
okay, they messed up completely by not booking a nice swimming pool. <laughs> but but the rest of the production is mainly set in the towers, around the corridors, and in the people's living quarters. And I think that works brilliantly. And, and I think it's a wonderful script, actually. I, I think, think it's, it's an fair, amazing script. I think it's incredibly Doctor Who. I can see that story work in every single season. So not season, every single Doctor. Um, can you see it work, though, in Colin Baker yeah. under Eric Saywood? Yeah, I could. And it'd be incredibly violent, even more so, in fact. <laughs> be more people. The, the Doctor with a gun in town. But I can't see the metaphysical aspects of it working. I can't see Eric no, Seward no, no. doing cannibal grannies. <clears throat> Metaphysical. Metaphorical. Is this family entertainment, though? No. If you... Yes, but I think it is, because children take that in. What if not metaphorical aren't nursery rhymes and no. fairy tales? Fair point. Fair point. Sylvester McCoy is getting back to having Doctor Who as proper children's entertainment, mm. wherein the ideas aren't meant to be taken on a literal level, but they're meant like Hansel and Gretel, like The Wizard of Oz, like Alice in Wonderland, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, to give it its proper title. They're meant to be taken on a non-literal level. And that's and I think those stories, Happiness Patrol, Paradise Towers, Greatest Show in the Galaxy, work really, really well when you take them like that. You talk about Richard Briers being far too over the top in his performance, but he is a Wizard of Oz character in that story. Doesn't matter. He still looks like Hitler. You know, he looks like Hitler with a big hat and he's stomping around and he's basically like a John Cleese character. It's just over the top. It's very silly. If they'd have had, strip all of that away completely and put in, I don't know, um, Den, Dirty Den, the actor Dirty Den, right? You make him the caretaker, being more suave and a little bit dangerous then that's more believable, and that would have been But it wasn't quite, meant me, to be believable. Have you not just listened what would, to what I've been saying? What no. would be interesting <laughs> is for overseas, if there's anyone overseas who's listening to this, yeah. their impression of Richard Bryer's performance. Because we know him as Richard Bryer's. He's yeah. the bloke from The Good Life. That was a big problem. He's the bloke from Rhubarb. that whole period. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So times. you have preconceived ideas. You see Ken Dodd. Ken Dodd, yeah. Perfect and, example. But yeah. Ken Dodd was brilliant in Delta. He was Batman. good. He, he was. was. Good. Ken Dodd, if anybody doesn't know, was a light entertainer for a long, long time. And he, again, I, I'm, I'm in agreement. I like Ken Dodd in Doctor Who, but he was cast in the wrong role. He'd have made a great evil baddie if he'd have played it straight. I think it would have been great as the Candyman. Yes. Yes. And, of course, in Curse of Fenring, you've got Nicola, Nicholas Parsons, Parsons which yeah, worked again. rather well. We actually. talked about before. Yeah. Mm. Look, yeah. let's get back to let's get back to Sylvester McCoy yeah. and his character. No, and he, well, let's talk about Sylvester McCoy and his okay. acting first. All right, because you know we're all going to have an. Opinion I don't on this. think Sylvester McCoy is a very good actor. I don't think he's a very good actor. I think he was a vaudeville performer, wasn't he? Before he got the job. I think the thing about Sylvester McCoy, though, is he has the perfect personality for Doctor Who. He, yeah, he does, the but he doesn't have the depth or the gravitas no, or the acting skill to pull it off. Which is a generic doctor, isn't he? He, he. <clears throat> Funny enough, anytime you want to come in, Mark. <laughs> can we go to the TV movie? Just, just going forward yeah, yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I got the impression in the in that I don't know how long was he the doctor for ten minutes, quarter of an hour, something like that. In that yeah. period of time, he was absolutely the doctor. Yeah, because he didn't really have to do he was like an anything. old, uh, old gentleman, to... a bit, a bit odd. I loved yeah. his hair. I loved what he was wearing. I Everything did. about it was fantastic. Even a few murmurs. The question yes. marks for starts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for that, but and he didn't, the trouble is in the TV movie. Of course, he didn't need to show any range. 
So, no. you know, he wasn't called upon to do... No, but I mean, even the little bits of acting he did, like, like on the hospital bed and what yeah. have you, was, oh, no, yeah, was great. great. Really if good. they'd have toned down the Sylvester McCoy doctor during the Sylvester McCoy years, so yeah. they didn't have to do these angry stuff and everything else. Yeah. If they'd have done him as a low-key doctor, same lines, just much more low-key performance, quixotic, enigmatic, yeah. alien, brilliant. And that would have played upon Sylvester McCoy's strengths. Mm, mm. So, I mean, I'm Instead not saying... just getting him to juggle every now and again. I'm not <laughs> saying by any stretch of the imagination that seasons 24 to 26 are perfect. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to no, try and convince no, no. anybody of that. Yeah, what what other seasons are perfect at the end Well, of the exactly. Day. Yeah. But I think, and I, you know, I said this a little while ago, that I think as a reinvention of the program, to get away from the violence hmm. and the... Overcomplicated storytelling and the text and subtext that didn't match, all that kind of stuff. I think it just works so much better as Doctor Who. Hats off to Cartmel and his ideas of making it uh, a different type of viewing pleasure. You know, you you look at the way that things are uh, put together, the plot, not the plots, but the actual kind of production, the way it's stuck together, the actors that are involved, the, the situations, the, the creating weird co- context, a more coherent universe. Yeah, because yeah, over that, especially that last season. Yeah. Right, back to Sylvester McCoy. I mean, okay, He develops, he develops, right? Okay, so you see Time in the Rowney, which please, I, I mm. don't ever make me watch that. I want to scrub it from my brain. I, I can't bear any part of that at all. It's, 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 doesn't, it's not fair on him to start off with because he's got to wear a ginger wig and pretend to be <laughs> Colin Baker on the floor, which is not a you good see that, that's that, that, just gets, that wrong-footed me because I'm quite loyal <clears throat> with my doctors. And the fact that Colin Baker didn't turn up and what have you, it kind of it, it cheapened the, the him coming in. It, it was like, it's almost like he hadn't earned his place. In a, what in else a, were in they going to do, though? That's I know, the I know, I know. Actually, I mean, you could have had um, a, a monster walking into the TARDIS, firing at the sc- straight at the screen, at the, at the viewers, as if the doctor and then in you front, come back and you come back and he's uh, and he's already changed. Floor, he's on the floor. He's just getting yeah. out of it. Or you do well, something what Russell T. Davis like. did with Chris Rex, then he just comes in. Start the new story. Yeah, the trouble is, though, I would have liked that. Yeah, actually. the trouble is, though, this is a year after the last episode's yeah, gone know, out, so different. you've yeah. not got the time thing. Mm. No, but yes, I think you're right. But also, by the same token, I suspect that idea probably didn't strike anybody. No, I'm sure it didn't. I, I did s- warm to him because it, the, Sylvester McCoy. Yeah, the, the first story. Yeah, I hated really him at first to start off, but with it was... actually, by the time he was through with being the doctor because i was at that funny age where i just hated it almost because it wasn't as cool as i would have no. wanted it to be because mm. the age i was and all that kind of thing but going back now i even like time in the rani more than say for instance i like revelation of the daleks because revelation of the daleks is just trying so hard to be something that it just fails to be whereas time in the rani where time in the rani isn't trying to be anything other than what it is what crap, basically? No, How much did you want? Like, I, I will go on up. record. I will go on record to say, Tom and Rani, Rani is crap, and I don't think it's necessarily many people's faults. It's just a lot of things that just 
didn't come together. They had production problems. They had, uh, you know, people, script writers problems. I mean, I think Jason, uh, Jason, <laughs> J&T was about to leave and then he was pulled back in at the last minute to say, no, you are going to be the producer. I know you want to leave, but you are. And he didn't have anything ready. Mm. So Pip and Jane came in, wrote this terrible, pro- this terrible, uh, you know, start to, to Sylvester McCoy's era. And Rani again is overshadowed by kind of, you know, before she was overshadowed by the master. This time she's overshadowed by the fact that it's the new doctor and she doesn't really get a fair crack of the whip. And I like the Rani. You think she was overshadowed by the master? You don't think it was the other way around? In Mark of the Rani? Mark of the Rani. She should have been the main part in that. She and was, surely. So what the what, what was the master doing there? He was just getting well, in, her and in was, the way. Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. He so, was her sidekick, though, not the other way around. Uh, he shouldn't have been in there, and she could have had a fair crack of the whip. But anyway, that's another, another podcast. No, I think she did. Uh, well, I think she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the amusing <clears throat> thing in that story is that the master thinks he's in control and... Really, we know that the Rani's the one that's in control. No reason for him being there at all. It's always been said, actually, that the Master and the Rani were going to be together in Yellow Fever and How to Cure It, the Robert Holmes Singapore mm. one that, mm. with the Autons that never got written for the season 23 that never happened. But, yeah. I mean, I've heard lately that the Master wasn't in it at all. It was just the Rani. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, uh, the whole the whole the, the whole around. time no. the Rani thing didn't work for me. The idea was silly anyway about the brain and you know trying to it's overcomplicated. Yeah, but it's B movie. Everything no, everything about it was just panic. It was a panic script. It was panic production. It was just quick. We've got to make this and get it get it going. You can see plainly when you get down to you know uh, Delta and the Bannerman, for instance, you're starting to see what this is going to turn into because. <laughs> No, 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 no. What I mean, no, no. What I mean is, you're getting all these different strings, these yeah. different elements. You've got these very odd characters in different parts of this story that mean that don't mean you know you don't need them there, yet they're there, telling something I don't know what. Maybe just giving you the atmosphere of the story, and then for some reason, maybe possibly they come together at the end. You know, these little threads, and it's the same with all of these. You've got these different threads of things going on, and it all comes together at the end. All the Virgin novels are like that as well. They start with, I don't know, two blokes paddling down the river and then somebody out, you get a story somewhere else where there's a couple of beekeepers and then somewhere up in space someone's talking. And eventually, about three quarters away from the book, they all come together and the Doctor turns up or something. And, I, you know, it's a different way of storytelling. The first one, Time of the Rhine, yeah. is like a Colin Baker episode. Yeah. Left over. But... And a really bad one. But... And then Delta and starts changing But the Time of the Rhine is not the trial of a Time Lord. You've got to give it credit for that. I didn't mind trying another time, Lord, actually. It wasn't that bad. It was better than the previous season. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you want to hear our argument about that, you can tune into our podcast number 32 called Trial. <laughs> that should be a good one to do. Well, actually. we put ourselves on trial and decide whether or not to sack Lee. <laughs> well, we've not talked about the Doctor's character. No. Sylvester McCoy, Seventh Doctor's character. Obviously, he's got no character in the first story. That's fair enough. That's a fair point because nobody knew he, who he was when they were writing it. He didn't know when, who he was when he was playing it. The production team didn't know what it was. They just got it before the cameras. Okay, that's a fair point. Second story, Paradise Towers. All of a sudden, you have got a doctor who's wandering around a building who's being slightly enigmatic with people, but who's also demonstrably taking things in and influencing things around him as well and who's actually becoming a participant in his own series again which is something that he probably hadn't fully been since probably Peter Davison to be honest maybe even since Tom Baker so as soon as I mean Paradise Towers hits the floor running 
character of the Seventh Doctor? Starts off being a bit of a buffoon. Um, not quite Troughton-esque, but that kind of tries to outwardly be the trying clown. to appear like an idiot. But in, in the background, yeah, in the background, obviously he's doing his little machinations and sort of contriving to bring things together to, to solve the problem, whatever the story's going to be. Um, it gets darker, certainly towards the end. When you say dark, everybody says this, it's come a cliche. When you say darker, what do you mean? Um, well, there's less of the... It's divisive. Yeah. He's it's, it's a bit of a git, really, to be honest. Things like, certainly I mean, is. Ghostlight. I adore that story. It doesn't make a bit of sense to... You know, first viewing and possibly second viewing, and we've kind of covered this before, but I love that story. I think it's great. And yeah, at the heart of it, he's just been an absolute swine to Ace. You know, he's taken her back to the worst yeah. moment in her life. He's he's really and making her live, relive it again. He's really not very nice as a as a doctor. I don't mm. think he's genocidal uh, as well. By the way, guys, how many before. how many aliens has he killed? That man, you know, Scarrow wiped oh, out yeah. a Cyberman army. You know, he's just yeah, whatever. Okay, that's that's them sorted out. And he's going yeah 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 yeah. He actually feels like the master. Right, Lee. Before you run off anywhere, coming back to Ghostlight. <laughs> yeah. Mark's point. Right. right, Mark was making a point about the Doctor being a git to Ace and Ghostlight. Yeah, like the Master. For what reason does he take Ace to that house? He doesn't know this experiment's happening in there, does he? He just takes her there to scare her? To be honest, I think he, his character is being drawn up and written as if he knows exactly what's going on. If he gets tied up and thrown into a fridge, he wanted that to happen. Because he's so, you know... Do you think he's that... That in charge of what's going on? They're, they're leading us to believe he is, and I don't well, necessarily they do like in, that. Well, um, well, I don't know. I actually. like him to be surprised. Yeah, but the, there's definitely a case of that in things like Silver Nemesis and Remembrance. But in Curse of Fenric, doesn't he just become involved in that story, the science fiction aspect of it, by accident? I mean, he's just taking Ace back to meet her mother to try and resolve issues, isn't mm. he? And then the vampires come which, in. Which which one is the... no? Curse of Fenric is the vampires in the Second World War. Which one's the? Well, no. Which which of the series is the unfinished business series? There's one particular series that they wrote. That would have been season twenty-seven. That never got to screen. Do you no, mean no, Colin no. Baker or Sylvester? No, McCoy? No, Sylvester McCoy. I was reading. Um, as part of my homework, I was reading the book Ace by Sophie Aldred and... Mike Tucker. Yes. Yeah. And there's a big thing in there about how, as they went into that series, the idea behind all each of the stories is this unfinished business. So in each story, there was going to be something... That oh, that's season had. 26. Yeah. yeah. That's Ghostlight and Curse of Fenric. And... But the idea was that he was taking Ace to places where there would be unfinished business about her... Personality. Mm. He takes her back in Curse of Fenric to meet her mother as an infant so she can develop the bond that she didn't have with her mother, which is why she left when she was 16, a teenager. Mm. Mm. And then it just so happens that the vampires are there and, the you know, this creature who's been there fighting the Doctor on a chessboard since the dawn of time. But there's no suggestion that the Doctor knows that Fenric's going to be there when he takes Ace there. He takes Ace there to meet her mother. And in Ghostlight, he takes Ace there to meet this house that haunted her when she was a kid because he knows that actually this haunted house isn't really actually haunted and he gets there and finds aliens there. I don't think there's any suggestion he knows the aliens are there before he gets there. I don't think he's cosmically playing that much. I think he's trying to repair Ace as a character. Does that not just make him callous then? 
Well, no, because he's trying to fix her, isn't he? Mm. Ace comes into Doctor Who as a broken character. She's absolutely terrified in Ghostlight. Yeah, but he doesn't take her there to be terrified. He takes her there to prove happens, that there's though. no. Yes, because <laughs> the aliens are there, which he's yeah. not expecting. Mm. I think he's taking Ace to the haunted house to prove that it's not haunted. Mm. Only when he gets there, the surprise is on him because it is. Whoops. I mean, that's yeah. what I do. Come on, Ace, story. let's go to this planet where they've got a circus. I know you're afraid of clowns, but let's, let's get rid of that by showing you these killer clowns. That yes, but he work, doesn't does know it? they're killer clowns till he gets there. Does he? Well, does he what? leave? No. <laughs> they, they go into... He, but this dra- is the he drags her into the tent. She yeah, doesn't want to go into the this tent. This is the doctor. He doesn't get into a situation and then walk out before he's resolved it. You could say that about any story. The Doctor and Leela turn up in Victorian London and find a murderous <laughs> alien on the loose. Do they get the hell out of there? No, they stay around until it's fixed. Same with the Ace in same with Ace in Greatest Show in the Galaxy. What? You can't say it's a storytelling faux pas that they stick around when they find there's aliens running riot. It That's really what hurts Doctor Who does. No, no, aliens. But I agree with JR. Aliens good, go. alien clowns not so good. Can I? Um... Yeah, but the point. I'm sorry, just to finish yeah, this off. On, the point on. with Greatest Show is the reason they go there is so that he can cure her of her phobia of clowns, <laughs> and it's only when they find out that they're alien clowns that the joke's on him. I'm saying the Doctor is this cosmic manipulator, but the joke's on him every time because every time he tries to cure Ace of something, it turns out that hang on, she's right, he's wrong. There's aliens. Sounds like a Hawkwind song, Cosmic Manipulator. <laughs> Is that, uh, oh, is that your point? Oh, I'm sorry, That's I'm, I'm, I really no, 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 no. I wanted to talk about Ace because there seems to be I, the impression I get is that Ace is a very, very popular character amongst the fans, hmm. um, and, I don't, and I don't get it. No, I don't think. Does anybody here get Ace? Yeah, I like Ace. Really, I, I just Ace. remember at the time. Oh, sorry, I just seemed like this big negative influence on this podcast, but. The- no, At the time, I remember thinking she talked like a Grange Hill character. Yeah, that was one yeah. of the She talked like okay. people in their 40s think kids talk. But I talk think yeah, like. she dressed like I people think in their Aldred 40s had a problem think kids well. dress. Yeah. I think Sophie Aldred had a problem with that as well. But obviously, at the time, it was going out. They couldn't. F and Jeff, so no. they've got to you, stick you, in these yeah, really no. bad... You are right. And again, I have no issues with Sophie Aldred yeah. at all. And also, she had no the big tree food the tom production. Fan. No. She, she, had, this... she had to spout out ridiculous words like bilge bag, which no kid would say. <laughs> she was definitely not a, a chav, or what, you, what people call chavs nowadays. She wasn't even close. I lived on a council estate, and she was nothing like the people I knew. <laughs> she, but, you know, it's kind of... She had a bomber jacket on, and she was already going out of date at that point. Yeah, walking around so with a ghetto blaster. On with a shoulder. ghetto blaster, yeah. yeah. All of that was silly. But once they got rid of that, yeah. and the character developed a little bit, she was actually quite good, I think. And I liked her as an actress. I don't know why. I just did yeah, at that point. About it. I think it's because it was, uh, you know... She was, a, st- she was a hangover cure for Winston's, Mel. Yeah. Yeah. See, I preferred Mel then, astonishingly. This is just like the... This is this whole podcast. This, is just going to end in tears, this whole it? podcast is a palm face. <laughs> I just... See, I didn't... Palm face? When they cast... Face when they cast... Oh, face yeah, palm. Face palm. <laughs> palm face. Palm face. It's you better. That's palm something face. to do with trees, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, carry on. I hated the fact that they cast Bonnie Langford. I thought she was going to be terrible. And while I was living through it, I thought she was terrible. But even then, when Ace came along, I pined for Bonnie Langford. <gasps> even at that age. Mel Mel wasn't great. There's a soundbite. 
listen. <laughs> <laughs> Mel wasn't great. I don't think she was great. I hated her. I hated the character, and I wasn't keen on Bonnie Langford at all as a as a kid. In fact, she was the last person. She's one of those people that I don't know. Maybe you've got somebody that you just go, for goodness sake, please don't ever be in Doctor Who. Please just don't. And she was an assistant. It's like, oh, for goodness sake, because I couldn't stand what she did in the Just William things. Okay, I hated that kind mm-hmm. of a- acting, that pantomime acting. The fact is, I've listened to her since on the audios. Okay, and she's really good on them, and yeah. I like the stories she's in. Yeah. In fact. I can I could hear her, the older Mel, being with Colin mm. and doing a good job. Just they dressed her up and they made her scream and they, you know, it and was they just pantomime. They ruined the character. They never. JT. We said this in the podcast that you weren't here for, but they never gave her the note. You're not in a theatre. You don't need to project. Exactly. And that's all she needed. And if they'd, somebody had just said that to her right at the start of when she was Doctor Who, tone it down for the television cameras, she'd have been brilliant. And that's. And I don't think, you see, Sophie Aldred didn't do that, but there were aspects of Sophie Aldred's performance that I thought were just as bad, equally as bad in different ways. But we must remember, I think the actress was 24, 25, she was playing very green a to 16. Acting as well, wasn't she? She, yeah, she was yeah. playing a 16 year old, wasn't she? Ace was yeah. supposed to be 16. And that was quite good. She was quite good as, as acting as a 16 year old. And a 16 year old would be a bit kind of frumpy, uh, not frumpy, you know the word, kind of grumpy. Grumpy and a bit, yeah, uh, sulky is the word, you know, oh, and, and annoy the doctor by calling him professor all the time. That's exactly what a 16 year old would do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I well, think that's in the that, writing. That's in the writing, yeah. And I think she pulled it off. I liked it. But then again, I haven't seen any Sylvester McCoys for ages. <laughs> so maybe I should go back and watch some. Yeah. <laughs> I've but I like to in it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, are there anything then that you three think the Sylvester McCoy years did really right? Um, TV movie. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, Mark, you've not the, been in this much. Well, Name a Sylvester McCoy story, your favourite. Ooh. Oh my God, do I have to put the list in front of you? I think it's Ghostlight. Like, kind of. Well, we're not Ghostlight. What would Ghostlight famously is the most incomprehensible Doctor Who story yeah. of the time? What I love f- about it is you've got this kind of they do historicals very well in this series. They've got all the sets and everything from all their sort of shows they do from other sort of mm-hmm. genres and what have you. The cast, I think, is really good in that one. You've got it's Ian got an Hogg. astonishingly good cast. Yeah, you've got Ian Hogg. You've got is it? Uh, Joan Sim? No, Sylvia Sim. Sylvia Sim. Sylvia Sim. Um, she's great. Very spooky. Um, and just the whole ensemble, I think they're, mm. they're really, really good. And there's a, just a real atmosphere in that particular programme. I really liked that because it reminded me of Sapphire and Steel. I keep putting yeah, it on no, about it. It felt like a Sapphire and Steel episode. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, it has that kind of weirdness to it. But one thing I I think it suffered being three episodes. It was three episodes, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And Survivor was four. Is that right? Mm. No, Survivor was three as well. Survivor was three. Mm. Oh, blimey, it feels like four. Um, I don't like Survivor. What was the other four? We'll p- what was Survivor the other four parter in that Battlefield? Battlefield. Right. And okay. Henry. Take one episode of Battlefield because. I didn't like that, and then give it to Ghostlight, oh, and I, like I think that I think Ghostlight would have worked with four episodes with a bit more explanation. So, I don't think because there was so, there was so much in it that was really good. It was just felt hmm. squashed, and there was too much to get. There's too much guesswork because obviously I'm, I think no. It's the edited one thing heavily. that Ghostlight was missing, which could have been a single sentence in each of the three episodes, 
what does the word control mean? Yeah, an explanation <laughs> of that, yeah. Because most people watching it could not have been expected to understand the concept of control. Mm. All you needed was somebody in each of those three episodes to explain in some way what the word control means, and all of a sudden, all three of those episodes would have made perfect sense. Mm. But it was, getting lost, it, it was getting lost in its own mysteriousness, and it wasn't explaining enough. But yeah. I think that was well, the same think... with most of them. Curse of Fenwick is another contender for not explaining enough and us having to have to guess what it's about. And I like that, actually. I like the feeling of it. I like the way it's filmed, and I like the, well, I even like the silly Hema balls. I love that. Stephen Moffat says that you don't need to um, understand Doctor Who as long as you can get carried on in... As, as long as you can get carried off in the sort of emotional import and follow the emotional through lines so that you care who survives and you know when people you care about survive you're happy and when people you care about die you're unhappy and so that the villain is an obvious presence in the story and as long as they're vanquished the story has resolution you don't need to understand necessarily how they get vanquished as long as you can understand that a they did get vanquished and b it was something the doctor did or the companion did that caused that to happen and uh I think, you know, you can bring the same thing to the Sylvester McCoy stories, like Curse of Fenric, except things like the Curse of Fenric all of a sudden devolve into a conversation between the Doctor and this guy in a wheelchair. And that's what lets that one down for me. I like that bit. Pardon? I like that bit. Yeah, but that doesn't ring through in storytelling terms. I like Curse of Fenric up to a point, but I don't think it's one of the great Sylvester McCoy stories. Because when it gets down to the end of it, how is it resolved? What's the resolution in Curse of Fenrir? Uh, I think, isn't it, the Ancient One takes some kind of bomb and blows lots of stuff up? I can't remember now. It's what been gets ages blown up? I don't know. I can't remember. I actually can't remember. I mean, uh, most, of What's the re- the most of the resolutions of tw- season 26 I didn't understand or get. But that's what I'm getting at here. I'm saying <laughs> those stories would have stood up if you could have... It doesn't matter if you don't understand the story as long as you understand the resolution. Yeah. As Mark says, there's a great <laughs> sense of mystery and ghost light. Mm. And if you'd have understood about the concept of control, yeah. the end of that story would have made sense and everybody would have gone away happy. Yeah. But because they didn't explain the concept of control, okay, and I'll do that for the listeners of this podcast because we've been talking about it for, for five minutes. Sake. <laughs> Contro- in, in an experiment, a scientific experiment, you need two identical elements, one of which you experiment on and one of which you leave entirely alone so that you can see what the differences are between the one you've experimented on and the one you haven't. And the one you don't experiment on is called Control. And so Control, in Ghostlight, is the character who is not supposed to evolve while all the rest of the characters are absorbing evolution to try and understand evolution. But they need a character who doesn't evolve so they've got something to compare themselves to. Now, if you just put that explanation in, each of those three episodes, or even just in the last episode, that would have made sense. What I'm saying, therefore, about things like The Curse of Fenric, and Greatest Show in the Galaxy, much as I love it, suffers from this as well, is that you get to the end of the story, and all these mysteries have been going on, and much as I like the McCoy years, you get to the end of the stories, and this is the one thing that Andrew Cartmel didn't do, you do need the explosion at the end. Not necessarily an explosion per se, but you need to see the bad guys defeated by something that the Doctor's done. And it doesn't matter if you understand or not what he's done, as long as you see him doing it. And in too many of those stories, you didn't really see that. The end of Curse of Fenric, you didn't. 
And for me, that's where that falls down. You it did, would be perfect. If you did. did get a huge explosion in The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, and that was a great moment. I love that yeah, scene. Yeah, you did, but it sort of came from where? It I don't know. Of, they yeah. just wanted to blow up a tent in a field. But um, That was episode one. There was also, at the end of episode four, the resolve, if you like, mm. was the gods of Ragnarok and the sort of earthquake. They sort oh, of what, oh, dissolve. Yes, uh, right, yeah. They sort of fall apart. So do we like... The fact that the Doctor is supposedly Merlin. No. And has... T- <sighs> Unless... I do. Stephen Moffat decides to do a prequel. Oh, no, it's already been... It's in the books, isn't it? Oh, Paul Cornell did Books it. don't count. Yeah, but you... Um... <laughs> For goodness sake. Well, they don't. The librarian. They don't. They're not canon, are they? Because human nature is is cribbed from a Paul Cornell book anyway. Yeah, I think that's a whole other conversation. The point being... Well, that's what you said, wasn't it? About the books. That it's in a book. If it's in a book, it can't be used in the TV series. Exactly. So because you can't expect a TV audience to have read a book, no, especially so Stephen Moffat could take the make a prequel to that. We could do a great do. Arthurian. Kind yeah, of but Merlin why would thing. he write a prequel to a story that's not been seen in twenty five years? Why not? Well, because it's just irrelevant. It doesn't. It, you don't have to have seen Battlefield to write a good story about the Doctor being Merlin. I'd right, like okay. to see him being Merlin yeah. and locked in ice and then getting out of it. But uh, but then just, why? But then why not? Yeah, because it's somebody else's idea. Yeah. yeah. All right, Simon. <laughs> <coughs> don't you like that? You don't I like that? I just think it's a naff idea. It is a naff idea, but I'd rather somebody explained it properly in a good story, mm. and I can go. I know, oh, I right, think it's then. a great idea. I don't think it's... Who else is the Doctor then from history? You know, he, oh, they it's not to make from him, history though, is it? To, well, to make, he's a figure from myth. I believe they and wanted the to make point, him God at some point as well, by the way. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll get back to that. No, but on Simon's point, <laughs> mm. go back to A Good Man Goes to War and there's a line of dialogue in there. The word for something or other is Doctor. Yes. I can't remember yeah. the specific yeah. line. The point being, the Doctor's been around so long that his name has gone into... Myth, Not just myth, but has actually gone into the language. Mm, I like so that. the doctor's and in myth. On a different meaning. <clears throat> doctor's in yeah. myth, mm. and he's in the language, and that's the point. The point of the Merlin story is Merlin is not a character from history; he's a character from myth. The doctor's been around for so long that this myth, the Robin Hood myth, has grown up around. And this is not necessarily exactly how it's presented on screen. Robin, Robin Hood myth. Uh, not Robin Hood myth. King, King Arthur myth. Oh, yeah, okay, so I'm sorry, always getting those two mixed up. Yeah. <clears throat> but, the point, <laughs> but the point being, the Doctor's been around for so long yeah. that they have uh, they've created this myth in which you have two major characters, one of which is a brave and noble king who represents the best that man has to offer, and the other of which is an enigmatic and mythological alien character a, a wizard a, a non-human somebody yeah. different and that's gone into myth because the doctor has been turning up in history so often that eventually they've built this myth around him mm. and that's how Mer- where merlin comes from i mean i'm not saying that's okay. what's presented on now, screen but i think it's an amazing if, idea if you mm. give if you give sylvester mccoy you talk, you talk to him you say listen <clears> mate you're going to be merlin in this one how are you going to play it well i'm going to play it really angry um, you know, but that's the thing. He doesn't. I'm going blame to turn you in into story, a he? terrible something. And the other thing was, that all of a sudden, there was a lot of that going on, and that's what made it hard to swallow. If that had suddenly turned up in one episode and they weren't doing anything else like it, you know, if they yeah. did the gods of Ragnarok no in one battle here, he can't shout. He can't be angry. Yeah, I was right though. At one point, Ace says to him, "So are you, Merlin?" And he goes, "Well, I might be, but not yet." Not yet. 
Yeah. So, so I know I like the way he's, yeah. play, he's playing on it. Yeah. But I just, you know, for, I don't know. But even he doesn't know, you know. Just for the sake of us, don't make him go angry because it doesn't work. I watched that one the <laughs> other night and I enjoyed it on a, on a certain Battlefield. Level. Yeah. I like Sylvester it. Sylvester McCoy, the rubbish Hulk. I think, no, I think Battlefield's got some really good stuff. I think there's also some really crap stuff. Yeah, most of I it. I think... St- like the female You're being brigadier. facetious when you say that, but what do you mean oh. when you say that? What, what, where do you want me to start? Well, I'm Have we got a further just... 25 minutes? <laughs> I don't like the writing in it. I don't like the acting in it. I don't like the new Brigadier. No, I don't but think she's you very can't good. just list things without saying the, what I, it is okay. about them you don't the, like. There is one thing I really like in it, and it's the fact that the Brig comes back and yeah. shoots to death a devil with a silver bullet and a gun. I love that. But so what <laughs> he's so don't hard. you like about <laughs> the writing? Um, I don't like Arthurian legend, which I hold on a high esteem, messed around with in a in a very childish-like fashion, which it was. Well, it was brought okay. up in, you know, you had it. But if it's it, not what okay, if does. it had been done, they were okay. They were they, they had a great concept. They just didn't have the budget to pull it off. If they'd have had hordes, you know, we're talking Lord of the Rings hordes of, you know, kind of. Uh, people in armour ready to fight each other. I don't know anything. And Morgana with huge powers. If you were to do it now, of course, you can do it with all that. CGI and it would look great and fun. but then it just looked like um, a pantomime again it just looked like a bunch of people going out into the woods like I did with a camera and going hey mate dress up in that and start fighting that bloke and pretend he's a, a human tree it's <laughs> but, that's what it looks like to me it looks cheap nasty badly like. done. most yeah. of that season does I'm afraid air to me but yeah but where's the, how's that a problem with the writing I don't like the writing in it either I just don't like it. I don't like the uh, characterizations. Uh, who was the little companion that um, Oh, Ace that's had? crap. But characters like Anselin and Morgane are brilliant. Yes, because they're mythical and they're there already. Okay. All right, they're not created by the but writer. Is, yeah, they are good characters because they are who, who does, they are. And this is what this story is doing. Bambera? Great character, is she? Oh, I wouldn't say so. No. Who else is there in that? So we've gone through, we've, uh, you know, the brig already created. Sylvester McCoy, the Doctor, Ace, you've already said you're not that keen on. Who else is in there that has been written yes, well? And, the, and, and what's great about the story that makes it really good to watch? Well, Battlefield. Yeah, makes you walk away it's going, great that fun, great. I enjoy it. It's a season opening, fun, not to be taken too seriously, good and evil, Doctor gets involved, he's a myth all of a sudden. It's big, it's silly, it's fun. Okay, it's and there's a nuclear, nuclear weapon, weapon is in it? it. Is it silly and fun? Because it seems to, uh, that, there's me saying that people don't take it seriously who are making the programme, but it seems to be taking itself so awfully very seriously. seriously. That's what I found as well, a on kid. on Battlefield? Yes. Yeah. No, uh, The whole doesn't. Merlin idea and... That's what it feels no. like. Melodramatic. It feels like the story is taking itself too seriously and it, it fails on every front for me. On Battlefield? In Battlefield, yeah. I wouldn't say so at all. And the archness of... of um, Morgana. Is it Morgana? But Arch is not serious. <laughs> Says Lee pulling arched eyebrows at me. <laughs> but if it's Arch, it's not serious. That's the problem. They're trying to take it seriously. Yeah, they're throwing in that at the same time, which is confusing. The whole issue. I think, it, I I think, think the whole Battlefield the is tone, just supposed to be. The tone, the acting, <clears throat> the, the, the way it's filmed. I haven't said all that. Even the direction. What's uh, The Destroyer? Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. Looks but that's what great. I said. The Brig and the Destroyer. Yeah. Best scene. Yeah. The whole thing. What um, about Brig's scene with Morgane in the graveyard? The, uh, um, yeah. Yes, Where okay. she lets him go because he's he's not crossed her yet. She only 
you know, deals with people who cross her. Not bad. What about her scene in the pub where she gives the woman's eyesight back because even though she just killed a soldier mm. who was crossing her, the woman behind the counter does her a favour, so she gives her her eyesight back to balance things out. Not bad. But there's only a few elements. There's not a I lot. I just like the... For four episodes. I like the Arthurian knights running around the countryside. What with, can I say? With laser guns. It works for me. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it too, so okay, yeah, two two, yeah. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, not just bashing it for the sake of bashing it. I, I, I tried to watch it. I've tried to watch it since, and both you three, know, both is... three times, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't think it's very good. I didn't want to come to this weak. podcast and just be bashing it all the time, and no. that's what I find so upsetting. No, it's too it. easy. Yeah, <laughs> but I do find it upsetting for that reason. Battlefield. Well, no, no, just generally the, the McCoy era. Oh, really? Yeah. You didn't like anything about it. I just find it very, very hard to watch. I find survival hard. I hate that one. I mean, Anthony Ailey's great in it. Yeah, but everything else about that is just so not right. No, I like the idea of going to the council estate. I mean, it's good because that's quite a breakthrough, I think, for Doctor Who. Of course, he did it all the time with Rose. But that was the first real kind of urban looking Doctor Who, I think, properly. Wasn't it? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. So it was a good, it was a good start. Count, really. But again, they've been all too mysterious. They bring all these little threads, and they had a rubbishy cat, by the way, didn't they? That, but that the little black cat was crap. <laughs> Hale and Pace in the shop, which was another, you know, oh, oh let's get yeah, Hale and Pace in the shop. Two comedy actors again from Light Entertainment dropping in. Pretty terrible editing. Not very good filming. There's a lot of things out of focus in it, and the the whole. If you, when you go back and look at it, the quality of it, it again, it feels like a college student trying to film Doctor Who, and it doesn't do a very good job. Going but, back to the subject of it being the first attempt at urban, yeah, they take Ace back, Dorothy back to see the council estate that she grew up on that has such a bad effect on her. That's even worse. And than they the show a leafy suburban avenue with these nice <laughs> yeah. semi-detached houses <laughs> that probably go for about two and a half million in the middle of London these days. I think that says more about the BBC in the nineteen eighties, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that was JNT's council one, house. Um, the one time that they did show something of that ilk, actually, was when they showed the council flat, wasn't it? With the little girl, the one who went on to be in EastEnders or something. I don't know, to a, in the third episode? Probably. Don't know. I'm trying to remember. I haven't seen that mm, one for a little while. Remember. Yeah, Sylvester McCoy's in somebody's bedroom in a council house. Is that right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that worked for me in a weird kind of way. Even though you can't remember it? <laughs> Not really, no. I remember bits of it, I'm sorry. But... um. I quite like some of the ideas, but, uh, you know, everybody says how great a metaphorical story survival is when we've had all these great metaphorical stories like the Happiness Patrol that really did work. And then you've got survival, which isn't really that metaphorical. It's all pretty much on the surface. And, mm. you know, it you could have made a brilliant Doctor Who story in that setting on that alien planet if you hadn't tried to be so metaphorical with it. You know, conversely, it's the one story where they've got the setting right enough that they don't need to do the metaphor. Mm. And there they are trying to do the metaphor in spite of getting everything else, mm. you know, in spite of yeah. what I said about the leafy mm. suburban setting. But here they are doing it the wrong way around right at the end of the series. I really liked the fact that Ace was inf infected with this, 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 um, you know, the the cheetah planet, basically. How does she become well, uninfected? Weren't the cat people brilliant. They were. I thought they, they were. were stunning. Yeah, I thought I they thought. were. Uh, they, I don't think she does become uninfected. I mean, she she kind of 
I, I can't remember how she gets a bit better to get well, off the planet. the planet blows up and so she Whatever. gets finished off, I guess. But I think she's still got elements in her, which was quite an interesting idea, that if they'd have carried it on, that that animalistic thing could have come out now and again. And she well, this have... is the thing with the script. This is, see, I, you think Battlefield has got a bad script, but I like it, it's a romp. But then you get to survival and she writes this script that you're supposed to get really deeply into with all these mm. animal things coming out of Rose because we're seeing Rose? her at the uh, Rose Ace because yeah. we're seeing her at the end of her adolescence mm. and the animal is a metaphor for the adult coming out I of know, the child. I know, I know. And then you've got this sequence where she shows the doctor landing on this motorbike in the middle of this explosion and Oof. then just riding off down the hill. Yeah, silly as well. What's that a metaphor for? Big bikes. Because if this is a <laughs> because if this is a metaphor, then you don't just stick random silliness in it for no. the sake of having a randomly silly scene. That was a randomly silly scene. And as they're walking away at the end of that, oh, you know, I hate that speech. It's fine. I don't mind actually. But as they're walking away at the end, of the, I was fully expecting Ace to turn around in a Michael Jackson style with glowing eyes. Mm. Oh yeah, and, get, well, and it's time suddenly hearing oh, 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 oh. that speech before Thriller. we go somewhere in the universe. There's a city made out of tea bags. <laughs> I'm that? sorry, the, the, I, I the idea that. of putting the speech there was nice, and the sentiment behind the speech was nice. But whoever sat down and wrote it, you know, people made out of song, this kind of stuff. I mean, seriously. Can you take that speech at the end seriously? People made out a song. That's a good idea. I like that. Well, you know, I, well, yeah, I should have written the speech then, shouldn't I? Because he didn't. He said cities made out of tea bags or something. I can't remember, I'm afraid, but uh, yeah. The speech. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, don't you? I know the speech. I haven't heard it. Oh, no, he's still alive. I'm still here. I'm hanging in. Okay. Silent so our, our final thoughts on Sylvester McCoy's era, mine being <laughs> that... I think it, I, I go in, I come in waves with this. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I, I, I think that the acting's good, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I like the, the episode, sometimes I don't. So it depends on my feeling on the day. At the moment, I'm a bit down on a lot of the stuff because of my memories. No, really? Yeah, I feel like I am. <laughs> Sorry. That did just and kind I, of slip through, Lee. And I do like Sylvester McCoy as a person because mm. I've met him and he's a really nice chap. Mm. Yeah, I think it's... I, I kind of agree to a degree with Lee, although I, I think I'm... Possibly more positive about his tenure. There is a bit up and down. Some leave me completely cold and some I really, really love. I'd like to say, Sylvester and Sophie, I love you. But. (laughs) (laughs) But, And um, then on the other hand, there's me who thinks it's a brilliant reinvention for the series. I need to rewatch it. In spite of the money problems and the fact that the script writers were untested and so... A lot of unprofessionalisms in the script, but I think their hearts were in the right place. I think what they were doing with the program was right. And I think, you know, a bit more money and a bit more time and experience on the writer's behalf, and we'd have had something as wonderful as Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who. Mm. And I think it stands I think it stands comparison with Russell T. Davis. I really, honestly, genuinely do. I think the only things you can point at are lack of budget, lack of time, lack of experience. But lack of imagination, no. Lack of wanting to do something coherent and different and positive, no. I think it's the, I think I said this before, but I think it's the most positive rebirth for the programme since An Unearthly Child. Agreed, actually. I don't think anybody had done something with Doctor Who that was as positive and that was as, how to say this, because... 
you know, we talk about Doctor Who or television eating itself, but none of the McCoy era lived off the past. No. no. You've not heard that expression, Lee. Where, where do you think He's the bad oh, no, pop will eat itself got that age? I think there was a lot of bad decisions were made in the production. That's that's what I think. But, but I less than had been happening for the last five years. Quite possibly. And, and you, you're right in as much as all, an awful lot of positivity and very solid ideas were happening. Um, just too late. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like trying to paint a red brown with crayons. <laughs> well, this is another podcast. Why did Doctor Who die? This is the JNT podcast, essentially, isn't it? Okay, so we'll do that another time. Yeah, a couple of months, maybe. I don't think we should do it straight away because after this one. <clears throat> but I think that Rot had set in a long time before. I'm on record as saying this, so it's nothing new. So I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. And I was Mark. Cheery bye. You can contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk.